if a wife is loving and completely devoted to her husband, she should expect that that love and devotion would be rewarded with faithfulness on the part of her husband and not the opposite. But it has happened. In friendship, loyalty is typically valued. It's not returned with betrayal, but it has happened. In each of the cases that I just mentioned, the problem is one of, of an irrational response on the part of the one who should be pleased, but is not. Irrationality is a sign, not just of poor emotional health, but also of poor spiritual health. We all have irrational responses to situations from time to time. That's not what I'm talking about tonight. But when it becomes a habit, when we find ourselves habitually responding irrationally to a situation, then we have every right to ask ourselves, why? Why am I doing this? When the believer lives their lives apart from fellowship with God, for an extended period of time, anything can happen. And the anything that can happen is typically negative. If you live your life apart from that close, intimate, personal relationship with God that we call the koinonia relationship in the New Testament, that's how John terms it, the koinonia relationship. If you live your life apart from that, and you have to willfully do it, but if you willfully live your life apart from that in open rebellion against God, anything is possible. And the anything that happens is typically negative. That's what's happening between Saul chapter 18 and chapter 19. In my view, Saul was rightly related to Yahweh by faith through faith. In other words, we would call him a believer. I do think that Saul was a believer. Some disagree with that evaluation based upon the way that Saul finished so poorly. But that makes the assumption that victory is somehow guaranteed in the spiritual life if one is truly a believer. In other words, if one has truly trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, then it's an automatic that they're going to finish well and glorify God with their lives. But that's not the case. It's not automatic. The Scriptures are full of admonition for believers to persevere in good behavior or to finish well. If success was assured to the believers, the admonitions would be superfluous. We don't have to be commanded to breathe. That's something that's automatic. If I'm alive, I'm going to continue to breathe. I don't have to be told to breathe. But we have to be told to persevere in the faith, to avoid these sinful patterns, and to love God with all of our heart. If it was an automatic, we wouldn't have to be commanded to do it. When we observe the behavior of an individual and we we deem it out of the ordinary for one who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ, when we see that person acting poorly, our first response should not be that they must not have been saved in the first place. I personally have found that it's a lot easier for someone else to say that about someone else than they do about themselves. They typically don't sit down and say, I must not be saved. You, did you see how I behaved in traffic today? I must not really be saved. Although I have had that happen. I've had someone that's been too long ago that just sat down with me. 
they were, were using kerosene to do something terrible had happened to them. They had done something wrong. And they said, I just, I'm going to leave the country now and start over. How could I do that? And listen, let's stop that right now. Have you personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and cleanse you from your life? Have you done that? If yes, I have. Absolutely, I have. I say it even here in Memphis. I did their baptism. You know, where they stood in front of everybody right out there and said, yes, I have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and cleanse me from my life. I said, then you are saved. Now, what you did was wrong, and you were walking out of fellowship when you did it. But the solution is not to re-believe in Jesus Christ. That's been settled. You are justified before Him. Now the solution is to confess that sin to God. You come in and you confess it to me. Confess that sin to God and then turn away from it and keep moving. And don't continue to live your life looking in the rearview mirror and focus every day on that sin which is behind you. Now, an occasional glance in the rearview mirror to remember that sin might be helpful so that you don't do it again. But a continual focus on the past is going to be a train wreck for the future. So it does happen that sometimes people doubt their own salvation when they shock themselves. But much, much more of the time, I see people doubting other people's salvation. Somebody does something, they say, well, they must not be a believer. Based upon what? Based upon that action? Based upon that sin? They committed adultery, so they must not be a believer. And by the way, this is not <laughs> giving anybody a license to any of these sins. They committed adultery, therefore they're not a believer. Well, there are people in the Bible who committed adultery. They're definitely believers. One of them is studying his life right now, King David. They committed murder. And you're saying they're a believer? Well, Again, we're studying King David right now. You know that there are some people that don't think that David was saved when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah's book back there. You know that? I would challenge those people. I would wonder if they've ever even read Jesus Christ Christ. Because they would have to then be saved. David wasn't a believer when he fought Goliath. And when he wrote several of the Psalms that we've already studied, this is true. We don't need to have as our first response, well, they must not have been a believer. That's the wrong response. Now, it is fair to say, apparently they're not walking in fellowship with God. That should be the prayer. If they have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Weren't those wrongs under the bus just yet? King Saul was, by all rights, a believer in Yahweh. He starts well, but he finishes poorly. Just because he finishes poorly, it doesn't follow that he wasn't a believer. No one is guaranteed success in the spiritual life. But Saul had lived consistently out of fellowship with God, and the Holy Spirit had left him. Just be clear, you know, that can't happen today. David's prayer that we'll study later on in this study, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, after his great sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah's book back there. He knew the Holy Spirit had left Saul when Saul walked out of fellowship with God. David knew that he hadn't been walking in fellowship with God probably for a full year. He had every reason to be concerned that the Holy Spirit would, would be withdrawn from him, and therefore the kingship was lost. But that can't happen to us today, so that's not a prayer that we would pray. But for Saul, it has. As chapter 19 opens, Saul has abandoned all pretense and openly expresses his desire for David's death. It reminds me of this movie, The Untouchables, where Robert De Niro is playing Al Capone, and they're sitting around this round table, and he wants Elliot Ness, 
dead. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want everybody he knows dead. It's almost like that's what's going on with Saul here. He wants David dead, and he doesn't care how it happens or who gets hurt in the process. The reason I can say that is because one of the episodes of him trying to kill David in this passage is going to be in his own daughter's house. His own daughter. He's willing to kill his son-in-law in front of his own daughter. Now, what kind of a madman do you have to be to do that? He has lost his mind. But it didn't happen overnight. It was a gradual result of Saul walking out of fellowship with God. When we walk out of fellowship with God for an extended period of time, anything is possible. And the anything is simply negative. Previously, Saul's efforts to kill David had been covert. Now they're going to be overt. And this is going to create quite a conflict in the soul of God. On the one hand, he wants to honor his father. He's a good son. But on the other hand, there's this friendship he has with David. The thing that tipped the scales, I believe, was his personal loyalty to his own integrity. And also to Yahweh, his God. He knew that in the end, he had to do the right thing. So if there's a conflict between honoring God and honoring his father, if his father put him in the position of making that a conflict, then he had to honor God. Hopefully, as dads, we don't put our children in that position. It's a terrible thing to do to your son, to put them in a position of having to choose between you and God. The choice that shouldn't be. They should be choosing God when they choose you. It should be one of the same if you're walking in, in fellowship with God. In verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 19, the text reads this way. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 35 says, A king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant incurs his wrath. That's the way it ought to be. David's behavior has already been called wise earlier in the chapter. He should delight in David. If he was walking in fellowship with God, if he was thinking clearly, if he was not blinded by anger and jealousy, then he would have honored David. He would have delighted in David. But the fact that he doesn't delight in one who's doing everything right at this point shows it's not something about David. It shows us something about Saul's mental state. David had been a wise and a faithful servant. There was no rational reason for Saul to hate David. As we've seen in previous studies, Sinful jealousy clouded his thinking. Jonathan warns David of his father's intentions. And given Saul's previous actions against David, I'm sure David had no trouble believing when Saul came and said, My father wants you killed. He wants to have you killed. He commanded me to kill you. David flees to a field, presumably nearby Saul's residence, to wait for word from Jonathan. The next day, what happens is Jonathan lets his father calm down. The next day, Jonathan stands up for David, reminding Saul, his father, that David is friend, not foe. You've got nothing to fear from him. In fact, Saul never would have had anything to fear from David if he would have just gotten right with God. That's the problem. And that's the problem for me, and it's the problem for you when we find ourselves making a series of irrational decisions. And you know what I mean. I think every 
everybody in here knows what I mean. We're going along just fine one day, and we do, and we choose to sin. Then we go a little bit further with regard to that day, and we choose to sin again. As the day goes on, we're asking ourselves, well, why did I do that? I know that's wrong. I know that's not going to be beneficial for me. I know it's going to end up hurting me. Why did I do it? We may not confess it, but we're curious. Why do we do those things? We go on again, and the anger keeps burning, and we, 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 we pile sin upon sin upon sin, irrationality upon irrationality upon irrationality, and sooner or later we've got to say, stop this. We pull the car over, or we just shut our office door. We turn off the television, turn the phone off, and confess the sin to God. Father, I've been acting irrationally all day long. It started with, and then you confess that sin. Wipe the slate clean and then move forward. And imagine what's going to happen if you don't do that and you live day after day and the days become weeks and the weeks become months and heaven forbid the months become years that you're walking out of fellowship with God. It's no wonder that our minds quit working properly. Well, we may be able to do math and we may be able to do our jobs properly, but we're not going to live our lives before God properly. That's why we've got to keep short accounts with God. It won't do to say, I'm going to pray in the morning and I'm going to pray in the evening. I'll confess my sins in the morning, which I already throughout the night. But then I'll, I'll have another prayer time in the evening. And if there's anything that I did during the day, then I'll confess that sin. That's not a wise move. It's a wise move to pause and confess it as soon as you realize you did it. Why waste the whole day? We're walking out of fellowship with God. So the next day, Jonathan reminds Saul, his father, that David was friend, not foe, and Saul relents. Look at chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, you shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul as he was in his presence, as formerly. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. We see that phrase come up a few times in our Old Testament studies, particularly on into Genesis. Remember, Adam listened to the voice of his wife and things didn't work out very well. This day, someone is giving some sort of counsel, and in this case, it should have been Saul. And he does. He listens to him. He has an emotional response that apparently there's no true repentance here. But he gets all religious on him. As the Lord lives. We don't even get out of this chapter before he's ordering him killed again. These, these oaths mean nothing if there's not something inside. It's like ritual without reality. People get baptized all the time, but it means nothing because they haven't truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're just assuming they have to go through that ritual in order to be saved. People participate in the Lord's table without knowing Jesus Christ. That's a sin. Ritual without reality means worthless. It's meaningless. This vow had no reality behind it because he's still thinking irrationally. All this is is religious wrangling. God is not interested in religious wrangling. He's interested in action. Show me what you got. Show me how much you love me by what you do, not just by what you say. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all of these words. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. I've got a second language that could use some reading on that one. He's already, there's already been two murder attempts and now another threatened murder attempt. And there's going to be another one, unfortunately. David, this 
serves in Saul's presence. And then when war breaks out again, so we don't know how long this lasts, but when war breaks out again, David goes out to fight the Philistines, and guess what? Be successful one more time. Success has been built upon success upon success. Isn't it interesting to compare it to the contrast between David and Saul in this passage of these chapters? David has success upon success upon success. Saul is having failure upon failure upon failure. It's as if they're going in completely opposite directions. But that's also happening in our spiritual lives. David is having spiritual success after success after success. Saul is having spiritual defeat after defeat after defeat. Is it any wonder that what follows outside of their spiritual lives is exactly what's happening in their spiritual lives at home? No surprise to me. He goes out and he's successful. And what happens to Saul? Well, the as the Lord lives goes away pretty quickly. Just like before, God sends a spirit of discontent upon Saul. And once again, Saul tries to kill David with a spear. That's three times that he's come to spear at David and tried to kill him in a relatively small space. I'm sure David's reflexes are getting well honed by now. Having to, he's having to dodge these quite quickly. It's a tongue too, but kind of parry these things. The final phrase of verse 10, and David fled and escaped that night, describes the beginning of years of running from Saul. David will spend most of the decade of his 20s running away from Saul. He'll have some good moments and, and a few not so good moments during those years, but most of his 20s will be spent on the run, as will some of his senior years. In this case, he's on the run from Saul. In his senior years, there will be a brief time when he's on the run from his father, Absalom. In verses 11 through 17, God again providentially protects his anointed servant. And again, the agent of that protection will be one of Saul's own children. The agent of the protection in the first part of this chapter is his own son, Jonathan. The agent of protection of David in the last part of the chapter is going to be his own daughter, Jonathan's sister, Michal, or Michelle, if I don't, I don't think that's the more modern English. Look at verse 11 with me. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. This is where Psalm 59 comes in. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. Somehow she knows it's true. Did Jonathan come and tell her? I don't know. Did she hear a rumor? I don't know. But she knows that they're coming to kill David that night. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair in his head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of goat's hair at his head. So Saul said to Michal, This is his daughter. Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Now remember that phrase in just a moment. We'll comment on it. Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? In other words, she says David's pregnant. When David ran from 
Saul after yet another spear-throwing episode. He just goes home. He doesn't go down to the Bethlehem. He doesn't run down to Beersheba. He just goes to his home. He must have thought that Saul was just going to temporarily insane, and shortly he'll come back to his senses. He's done it at least three times before. This time's going to be a little bit different. I don't think he thought that Saul would actually come to his house where his daughter lived and pursue him there and try to kill him there. Even the worst men don't usually kill their sons-in-law in the house of their daughter-in-law or their daughter. But David underestimated the depth to which King Saul was going to descend. And if David lived apart from the fellowship of God for any extended period of time, anything is possible. David's not going to be immune to persecution. Later in his life, David's going to lose a year because he won't have a fellowship with God. And he ends up killing his only son. Look what happens to David of all people. Anything is possible, and anyone is susceptible if we live our lives consistently out of fellowship with God. We might even say, if you do that, all bets are off. Right before David is born, Saul's men are on the way. We're not told again how, how this power learns this thing. But she warns her husband. She does the right thing. If we piece this together with what we'll study later in Psalm 59, which David will write recalling this incident, we understand that Saul's men had already surrounded the house when she let him down through the window. She gives David an opportunity to put some distance between himself and these men, who David would describe in Psalm 59 as howling like dogs, trash-talking, perhaps. But they're making a lot of noise. The wife says, they're here to kill you. She lets him down the window, and she stalls for time when they come knocking on the door saying, David's ill. He can't be disturbed. Can't see him right now. You'll have to come back another time. So the assassins go back, and they tell Saul, well, we can't get in right now. They're sick. Your daughter's the one that won't let us in. And he says, enough of that. You go get him, and you bring him back on his bed to me, that's what he tells the king. It's then that they discover that they need help. In fact, they do. But Saul challenges his daughter. She says, in effect, well, I can't help myself. You threatened me. Why should I die? I mean, you just you want to kill him, not me, right? We can look at a couple things. In this case, this house doesn't honor her father. But she does honor both her husband and her Lord. Some see this whole episode as sinful on her son's part. Helping David escape, the ruse of the dummy lying in the bed, and then lying about David's illness, and finally lying about the threat. I don't see it that way. With the possible exception of the final lie about David's threatening, which certainly didn't happen. In each of these incidences, this house chooses the option of the greater good, the option of love, which is an ethical philosophy which is called graded absolutism. A graded absolutism is basically choosing the greater good. It's not the same as moral relativism or, or 
situation that happens. You get a situation, situation that happens, you say, well, they do sometimes you choose the greater good, other times you don't choose the greater good. And this essence, which I believe is the best biblical understanding of a biblical essence, which is the best biblical essence, we always choose love. We always choose the greater good. When it is clear, I know not everybody in this room necessarily agrees with me, but when it is clear that people are going to use the truth for evil purpose, they are not entitled to the truth. I'll say that again. If it is crystal clear that they're going to use the truth for evil purposes, they are not entitled to the truth. So Corey Tinboom did not sin by deceiving Menach. Yitav did not sin by deceiving Mizapheth. Neither will Hushai the archetype sin by deceiving Absalom, by frustrating the counsel of Ahithophel. The Hebrew midwives did not sin by deceiving the Egyptians. Having said that, we need to exercise caution here. Graded absolutism is not a license to sin. It's not a license to lie. What it is, is the greater good in action. So let's be very, very cautious. Not all of us are put in a position, hardly any of us will ever be put in this position in life. At least not on a grand scale, like the Hebrew midwife, or like Yitav, or like Corey Tindu, or Hushai the archetype. But if we ever are in that position, I don't believe we have to be professional. I think doing the greater good is the right thing to do. In this case, Saul is insane. He has no right to the truth. He has no right to execute the sentence. More practically, I think if you're one of his wives, you should ask him to get a sentence for you. Because on your own there, <laughs> who's the greater good? <laughs> you just you can't answer that question. Pretend like you didn't hear it to begin with. No, there's one note that we need to need to briefly address, and that's the idea of the household idol. A lot of people wonder what in the world was David doing with a household idol in the first place. Why is that in his home? It's reminiscent of the episode of Judges and Rachel in Judges. The idols were almost certainly Natan and not David. There is not even a hint of whisper of idol worship in David's life. In fact, quite the opposite. One thing about the idols, too, is the idols are being spoken of here, the, the term that is used indicates a small idol. It's not a five foot eight, five foot nine idol in their home where they can just lay on the bed like a mannequin and just put goats here on top of it. Because what she probably did, she probably had more than one of them. Material, perhaps. There's nothing about child worship that there is in that. At least there was. I just can't say yes or no. There's not enough information on that. But apparently she piled a bunch of them up in her own and then put the hair over the top of the bed. So it was quite, it was quite something. David escapes, and he does, to a neighboring town. Doesn't that happen sometimes when we get ourselves in a big bind? We want to go somewhere where we trust the person, a familiar person, and where we trust them to sleep. It's like you can hear in Judges and Rachel. When I'm really in a bind, when I'm really in a bind, who do I trust? David's really in a bind. Who do you think you trust? That's, that's who I would have sought out, too, for a lot of different reasons. Not the least of which was Samuel was the one that anointed him in the first place. 
might have wanted to ask him, are you sure you got the right guy back there? Because it doesn't seem to have worked out for me, except for the Goliath. They had all the successes, but in terms of the kingship, it doesn't seem to be working out for me like perhaps I had thought it would. So David goes to Samuel. Look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nail. I can just picture this conversation. Here comes David running down the road. Samuel is out there listening. Come in, son. Tell me what's happened. David tells Samuel everything. I kind of think, I picture this as Samuel sitting down saying, you know, doesn't surprise me. Saw this coming. Tried to warn him. He fought it on himself. Now let's see what we can do. Again, some people would have criticized Samuel here and said, well, they shouldn't have run anyway. They should have stayed right where they were, let the troops cover them, and then God should take care of it. That's not what they do, though. These men of God, David and Samuel both, flee. There's a time to stay, and there's a time to go. One of my dear, dear friends, you know him, Ozzie Nelson. We were having a conversation some years ago when he was visiting from taping of the television program. While he was taping the program, he was back home in Pakistan. The Taliban was on the offensive. Perhaps you remember this from several years. Taliban's on the offensive, and they're moving toward his hometown. There still was one city in between, a major city in between the Taliban and his hometown, but he's getting pretty nervous. And he wasn't sure if he should stay or if he should go. I asked him, what are you going to do? Because he was going back. What are you going to do? If the Taliban breaks through and comes into your city, he said, well, I'll stay. And they say, well, why will you stay? He said, because the Taliban, they need Jesus too. They need this church. We talked and we had some very wonderful conversation about that. It was a very courageous decision. Turns out the Taliban didn't come. Fast forward a couple years. Ozzie is in the market, the marketplace, the open-air market. He's walking through the market, visiting various things in Pakistan. He's recognized several of the imams, smaller level imams, come out and meet him and immediately begin to talk. They ask him some questions that he cannot answer under their culture. And immediately, he can't answer them under their culture and still remain true to his Christian faith. He answered as best as he could without offending the prophet Muhammad, but he, he affirms his faith in Jesus Christ, and they put out a hit on him. It takes them several months to get it through all those, the local channels, but they put out a hit. And in Pakistan, if you want to murder somebody individually, you're going to get in trouble. But if you want someone taken out, like Saul wanted David taken out, all you have to do is turn it over to a recognized terrorist group. This is a, this is a laugh, but this is Risk. Turn it over to a recognized terrorist group, and if the Taliban does it, or if Al Qaeda does it, or several other more minor groups, then it's okay. They turned it over to him. This time, Ozzy had conversations with me and quite a few others who know him. My advice to him was to get this translated and not say anything. And I told him there were times when the Apostle Paul stayed, and there were times when the Apostle Paul left. In fact, he left a whole lot more times than he stayed. Whatever the Holy Spirit led him to do. In this case, Osman being Osman, remember this, waits until the last second. I mean, the last second. I'm on the phone with him. Have you left yet? No, I'm going to wait till tomorrow. My son is sick. Osman? Anyway, he leaves at the last second, and he now is a 
in Australia where you've got a group of administrators ministering to millions of people. That's the work. The work that often begins in Africa isn't unique often to America. There is a time for you and there's a time for me. If the Holy Spirit is leading you to leave and you stay, that's sinful. He's leading you to stay and you leave, that's sinful. It's easy enough. You follow what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. And I believe Samuel and David both were following what the Holy Spirit had led them to do. And so they leave. Then some strange things happen. In verse 19, and it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to take David. Now the messengers is a real kind word, and that's a kind way of saying assassins. Well, I'm going to translate it that way. Then Saul sent assassins to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. That's not all. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. You see what's happening here? Saul sends these people out to kill David. There's some theological issues as to whether these people were believers or not. The Holy Spirit had come upon them. It's very, very possible that they were. But they prophesy. I'll say, I'll mention what that means in just a moment. He sends the first wave. The Holy Spirit stops them, pretty much dead in their tracks. And instead of carrying out the assassination, they praise God. Thinking other vision. Instead of carrying out the assassination, they praise God. Third vision. Instead of carrying out the assassination, they praise God. So what do you think Saul does? He comes himself. If these guys can't get it done, then if you want something done, do it yourself. Right? So then verse 22, Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Sechbeam. And the asses said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are in Naoth and Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. So he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Verse 24, And he also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay down naked all day and all night. Therefore, they say that Saul also was a prophet. This is a funny thing. It's like God saying, you think that you're going to kill my anointed? I'm praying for you. God can pray with whoever he wants to. Even the king. Even King Saul. Stephen Bramer, who is, I believe, the chairman of the Bible Exposition Department now at the seminary in Cincinnati, speculates that the prophesying here was probably distinguished. Others, like Ronald Youngblood, think that they went into some sort of trance. We can't be sure, but one thing that I think we can be fairly certain of is that they weren't proclaiming the Word of God either in foretelling or forthtelling. It doesn't seem like they were doing that. They were doing something else. When Saul finally comes, he doesn't just start prophesying, whether that's singing or whether that's just being in some sort of trance, God strips him down naked and has him on the ground while he's prophesying. Do you think God's not making a point here? There's a visual point to be made. It's probably not the one you're thinking of. 
But the visual point to be made is his kingly garments have been stripped off of him. He is laid bare before God and before everybody else. With that, we have got the point. But it looks like Saul is an Old Testament example of a principle that is brought up in the book of Hebrews. I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, in the final few moments that we have here tonight. And I want to talk about one of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 is considered by some to be a problem passage for the doctrine of eternal security. Well, it may be. It's a difficult passage. But it's also a problem passage for those who believe you can lose your salvation. It's a problem passage for both you. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. The book of Hebrews has five warning passages in it. And the debate has been for several hundred years among theologians, among New Testament scholars, who is being warned and what are they being warned about? What are they being warned away from? There's one view that says that these people are believers and they're being warned that if they don't discontinue their sinful behavior, they'll lose their salvation. There's a second view that the people in view are believers and they're being warned that if they don't discontinue the behavior, there is going to come a point in time that they'll pass the point of no return and they won't be able to repent anymore. It's a very scary warning passage for believers in the Christian claim. There's a, a third view, the view of Calvin was, that the people weren't actually believers. And they're being warned that you think you're a believer, but you're actually on your way to hell. I'm going to read you something here now that I think is going to eliminate the third view if we're objective. Those who hold to eternal security and see this as a problem passage would kind of like to hold the third view, that these people weren't really saved in the first place, so they're not losing anything. But that really doesn't seem to fit the passage as it is here. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning, let's just begin in verse 4 for the sake of time. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, well, could that be a believer or unbeliever? Well, that's a little iffy so far. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, this seems like it's going in the direction of them being believers. And here's one that kind of sticks it over the edge. And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now that language is only used in Acts 2. And have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come. I'm sorry, but I'm afraid that's eliminating the next point. These aren't people that have just confessed to Christ. These are people that have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. We can't get out of that that easily. It does look like the people being described in this passage are believers. And I'll tell you, we're going to study Hebrews sometime and then hopefully not do this too frequently. Whatever you do with one of the five warning passages, be consistent in doing what you do with all of them. It's my view that all of the warning passages in Hebrews are written to believers, not to warn them against losing their salvation, but to warn them against continued rebellion against God. But what is the continued rebellion here? Read in verse 6. So once they've come to this position, they're, they're certainly believers, at least if we take this language consistently throughout the New Testament, and then have fallen away. In other words, this is, this is a term that means that they have, they have lived inconsistently. They live outside of the fellowship of God for an extended period of time. They have fallen away from the faith. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. You 
can see why some people might use this as their salvation plan. It's impossible to remove them again into repentance. But remember, Eli said this is a problem not just for the entire security group. It's also a problem for those who think you need to lose your salvation. Do you see why it might be? There is no one, and I've capitalized all capital letters, no one who is a recognized, legitimate exegete in the New Testament. No one who, who, also, who holds that you can lose your salvation that also holds that once you lose it, you can never get it back. There, there may be somebody on the fringe that holds that, but there's no recognized, no, nobody that's respected that would hold that at all. They all hold that once you lose your, lose your salvation, then you can repent and you can get it back. This passage says once you've lost whatever it is that you're losing here, you're not getting it back. There is a line that you can cross. So it's a deeper, it's a problem for both groups. I would, if I was one who held, and I'm not, if I'm one that held that you can lose your salvation, this wouldn't be the passage that I would suggest. But there are problems for me, too, if I would hold that position. What this passage is saying is that there is a point in time that what John calls the sin that leads to death is a possibility. When one walks out of fellowship on a consistent basis, day by day, week by week, month by month, maybe even year by year, the text doesn't tell us how long. That's the scary part. There is a point in time where God says, enough. Stop disciplining. The book of Hebrews also says the one that God was going to discipline. Why? To bring them back into the fold. There's going to be a time when this is stopped. You know, the worst possible thing that can happen to a believer is for God to remove the sin from their life. Because that means you need saving. That's not what this is. And in essence, what's happened is you've crossed the line and God says, that's it, I'm through with you. And a guy that's going to lose his salvation. It looks to me as though King Saul in the Old Testament is a perfect example of who these six things were back in the New Testament. He has crossed the line where no matter what happens to him, he is not going to stop sinning. The Holy Spirit has been removed from him. He hates, becomes jealous, hates more, becomes angry, becomes more jealous, hates more. It's a downward spiral for him. We should look at King Saul and not say, well, he must not have ever been saved personally. We should look at King Saul and we should take note that there is a line that any of us can cross where God says, enough. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but you lose all fellowship with God in time and all reward with God when you take that step. And that is a problem for all of us. This whole episode of King Saul is a very scary passage. Because if we don't keep our eye on the ball, if we don't keep our focus on Jesus Christ, any of us could go here. I know you're thinking, if I couldn't go there. Yes, you can. We need to be extremely careful. In this chapter, We've observed the results of Saul walking out of fellowship with Yahweh for an extended period of time. When a believer lives apart from the fellowship of God,